Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, so this is the eighth episode of Breaking Down Collapse, sort of the last episode in our Collapse 101 portion. And in the future, we're going to get into the details of everything, and there is a ton of awesome things that we're going to dive into. But for today, to cap off the sort of foundation of knowledge that everyone should have about Collapse, we're going to talk about climate change. And climate change is a huge topic. Honestly, it's such a big topic that really even today, we're not even going to be attempting to cover every part of it. The purpose of this episode is going to be just to understand the scope of the problem and how it directly relates to collapse. Later, we'll be breaking climate change down into many parts and examining them in each of their own episodes. This is awesome. This is a conversation that I've really been looking forward to. At one point, you encouraged me to get on Reddit, and I've finally done so. I've started at least taking a peek at what is on the subreddit about collapse, and I feel like so much of it is about climate change. And so to me, it makes sense that this is kind of like the, the capstone of this initial foundation for understanding collapse, because I don't think I can fully understand collapse until I know what you know about climate change. Yeah, that's a great point. Like I had said at the end of the last episode, even if nothing that we've talked about in these last seven episodes was true, climate change is a big enough problem that it would cause collapse all on its own. Now, the first seven episodes have been extremely important because not only could they happen before climate change takes hold, but also they will play a big part in the way that climate change can cause collapse. So we'll touch back on that again at the end of this episode and how it all kind of ties together. 
But climate change is the one part about collapse that really isn't a secret. More so than the other topics we've covered, everybody's at least heard of it and perhaps understands a general idea of what it's about. But I think that most people suffer from sort of a fatigue of hearing about it over and over again. And because it's been brought up so much, it gets pushed to the back of our minds. You know, people hear dates like the year 2100 and automatically discount it as a threat because they think that that's so far away and beyond their lifetime. But what most people don't understand is that the science of climate change is constantly evolving. And year after year, climate scientists continue to reveal that we're on the path to severe climate change much faster than previously expected. Climate models are continually discovered to have been way too conservative, and the worst-case scenarios, and sometimes even worse, so far are turning out to be the actual scenarios. So as an example, just in the last decade, the scientific consensus for when the Arctic is going to have its first ice-free summer has changed from 2100 down to 2050, and then again to 2035. So it went from being something that was going to happen 80 years from now to something that's going to happen potentially just 15 years from now. And the significance of that milestone is something we'll discuss more in another episode, but many observers of the condition of the ice in the Arctic, myself included, think that it will probably happen even earlier than that and expect to see the scientific consensus continue to shift closer and closer. As a separate example, another headline I recently saw said, Arctic permafrost now melting at levels not expected until 2090. So there are tons of examples of that idea that things are happening faster than expected. And I've linked to um, an article on that topic in the episode description. So you can check that out if you want to see even more examples of that. So you've already mentioned that things are increasing at an accelerated pace. And even that the science itself is kind of catching up at an accelerated pace. And I'll just say that another area that I think has been increasing drastically is social awareness. I'm one of those naive people that grew up in a community where global warming was talked about as just bogus. Like Al Gore and all these crazy people out there just spouting all this stuff about something that's totally ridiculous. And frankly, it's only been in recent years that I've started to like see climate change as a reality. And now I see it brought up as a topic in presidential debates, and you see things about it just in the mainstream media. So I think even though I don't know a lot about it yet, and a lot of people still don't, I think it's gone from like, is climate change real or not, to people at least accept it as real, but now need to understand all the implications. Yeah, for sure. And I think... I think that's part of the big problem that we still face when it comes to being able to not only accept climate change, but make the changes required to mitigate the damage, is that that same reluctance to trust scientists that existed in the past does still exist today. I mean, and you can see it, right? Like, I think there was a quote recently from President Trump when asked about climate change. He simply said, the science is wrong, that scientists are wrong, right? And that distrust and the political nature of it causes people to not trust in the science of it. And therefore, the significant changes that are needed to be made are not being made. Did you know, Kellen, that 65% of Americans don't consider themselves having a great deal of confidence that scientists act in the public's interest? Wow. Yeah, so you know, a majority of Americans don't have that confidence in science. And we see that distrust in the anti-vaxxer movement, in like homeopathic remedies, and this kind of hesitation to trust in modern medication. 
And especially right now during the pandemic, where we've seen you know, Dr. Fauci getting dragged through the mud by armchair experts on Facebook and even by the president. And so science is sadly losing that respect and in perhaps a time when it couldn't be more important. Which I think is really sad, but I also kind of get it. I feel like people have just been really jaded by so much information and so much false information that nobody knows exactly what to trust. No, yeah, you're spot on. Like I have certain things that I don't trust necessarily. You know, for example, do I think that if I go to a doctor, are they going to prescribe me the help that I need purely out of wanting to help me? Or is it because hospitals are corporations and have to make money and even if there was a free remedy that they probably would not offer me the free remedy, they would offer me the one that costs my insurance company lots of money, right? Those are the types of things. And like you said, the types of information that comes out, you know, climate change science has been wrong many times up till now. So when you start to see that, it does start to kind of chip away at the overall confidence in science itself. And so likely because of that thinning amount of support that scientists have, they don't often predict future events. And when they do, they do it extremely conservatively. If they're wrong, not only will they personally be ostracized from the science community and see their careers go down the drain, but science in general would just take another hit and less people would be willing to put their confidence in it. So from that perspective, we can see why scientists talk the way they do about climate change and why year after year, they're more bold in saying this is happening faster than expected. It's easy for them to say, like, this is a problem that's going to come about in 100 years, right? It's harder to say this is a problem that's going to come about in 10 years or 20 years. But they're starting to do so with more and more confidence because they really have no choice anymore. The evidence is right, plain and clear for everybody to see it. And climate change is a particularly touchy subject because it has such huge economic and political implications. Like you just mentioned with almost basically an entire political party trying to discredit the entire idea of it. So because of that, scientists... Number one, don't want to be wrong. And number two, don't want to sound too alarmist at risk of being ridiculed or causing panic. So there's, there's a technical term for that, and it's called scientific reticence. And unfortunately, it's doing the world a disservice because it's giving the impression that climate change may not be so bad. And it has caused us to put it off until now when the world is kind of starting to wake up and realize how huge of an issue it actually is. Okay, so when you say scientific reticence, that's what it's called, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, that's just scientists are timid to make too big or bold of claims. That's right. Yep. And so with that being one part of it, the other part is that climate science is just tricky. Scientists like to use lots of data and historic examples. Well, when it comes to human-caused climate change, this is the first time it's ever happened. So there is no historical precedent to it. The climate has warmed to very high levels in the past and several times, you know, over millions of years and in the last hundreds of millions of years. But it's never happened at the speed at which it's doing so now and never at all in the span of human existence. So because of that, they're continually improving on their models. And again, those improved models show that present scenario is both worse and faster than expected. So I say all that to establish two ideas. The first is that there is a problem. And the second is that the problem is more imminent and more intense than most people think. For the last 30 years, the preachers of climate change have been saying things like, you know, if we don't act now, our grandchildren are going to have to live with this. But that time frame has now shifted. The problem is the mentality of the public who is sick of hearing about it is stuck on this idea that we still have, you know, 70, 80, 90 years until we really start to see consequences of it. And that's just simply not the case anymore. So climate change is already upon us. 
And it only is going to get exponentially worse from here on out. You know, I feel like I've seen this evolution in the way that people think about climate change and even the rebuttals against climate change. And I know the purpose of this conversation isn't to like necessarily establish whether climate change is real or not. I think we're just moving forward on on the assumption and the knowledge that it is. But at one point, people were saying global warming, global warming. And it was really easy for people to say like, well, we've had the coldest winter we've had in years. So global warming isn't real. And then as, as a little more knowledge has been spread about it and that it isn't necessarily just that things are always warmer, you know, scientists were saying, hey, we're having way more natural disasters than ever before. And on the other side, people were saying, well, we're, we're just getting better at measuring it. Like we didn't have instruments back then that could track all of this. So it's not that it's actually happening more. It's just that we now have the records and the instruments and the measurements to track it all. And then it felt like people were saying like, okay, yeah, things are changing but this isn't the first time things have happened like this in the history of the world. Like here's all this other scientific data that shows that we go in and out of these peaks and valleys and that the climate is cyclical. And so we're just entering a new stage of that cycle. So I think even now, like even though things have evolved a lot, I feel like there's always a reason that people have to be resistant to it. And there's always some sort of rebuttal that people have to say, oh, it's not that big of a deal or, or to say it's happening despite what mankind does. It's not man-made. It's just part of what nature's doing or, or whatever. Yeah. So I have answers to each of those concerns, right? As you're listening to them, I'm thinking, oh yeah, well, here's the answer to that. And here's the answer to that. And I'm not going to get into them right now. I think we'll talk about a few of them throughout this episode and in future episodes. But I think the important part is what you just said, that people will always find a way to try and discredit it and say, it's not as big of a deal as, as people think it might be. And after we go through this episode, I think it becomes clear why people think that way. Because to think about what could truly happen, and if what we talk about in this episode is true, then that disrupts everything, right? It changes life in such a dramatic and tragic way that people don't want to think about it. And so whether it's a way to cope, whether it's a way to just not face the cold, hard reality of it, whatever it is, people will find a way to shake it off like it's nothing. So part of the answers to one of the objections that you just mentioned that you've heard before is that human-caused climate change is actually a very recent phenomenon. In just our lifetimes, and we're both 30, the world has emitted as much greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as it did in all of human history prior. So from our ancestors building the first fires a million years ago, through the steam age and in the industrial revolution, through the creation of planes and automobiles, numerous world wars, all the way up until 1990, we released as much greenhouse gases in that amount of time as we have in just the last 30 years. That, that blows my mind. Yeah. And with our global economic growth being what it is, like we've talked about in previous episodes, it's likely going to be much less than 30 years more for it to do that amount of emissions again. So when Al Gore first started writing books on climate change, you know, 30 years ago, we hadn't even really scratched the surface of what we were about to do to the environment. And we're doing that now. So it was almost like in that time, they could start to see what was coming. And now we're at this point where we're in it, and it's about to become much worse. When it comes to the objection you've heard about sort of the cyclical changes, right, that it does happen every so often, it's true. The planet does warm with millions or tens or even hundreds of millions of years in between. We've talked about how there have been five mass extinction events throughout the Earth's history. 
Well, they happened from tens to hundreds of millions of years apart, and each caused more than 75% of all life on the planet to go extinct. And all except one of those mass extinction events occurred because the planet warmed after too much greenhouse gases were emitted into the atmosphere. And in each of those cases, it happened over millennia that we went from being at an equilibrium to the planet warming. And those gases were released by natural causes. In our case, humans are releasing greenhouse gases at a rate at least 10 times as fast as ever known to have occurred naturally in the past. Not only that, but the planet was actually starting to cool down. And it was thought for a long time through the 20th century that we were actually heading into another ice age. And it's because the trend was that we were cooling off. And that was the natural course that Earth was taking. We have done enough in just this last half a century or so to reverse that. And if you look at any graph that shows carbon dioxide in the air or average temperatures, they have just reversed and they're shooting through the roof. So that should tell you a little bit about the scope of the problem. Um, but let's take a closer look at what that actually could potentially mean for us in our lifetime. So the measurements for global warming are based on taking the average temperature of the Earth before the Industrial Revolution and using that as a baseline to compare our current temperature against. So for context, the five mass extinction events we spoke about were between 3 and 10 degrees Celsius above that pre-industrial baseline. And for the American listeners, sorry, I am going to use Celsius because that's the way climate change is talked about. But for reference, a 3 to 10 degrees Celsius change in the temperature would convert to something like a 5.4 to 18 degree change Fahrenheit. And those don't seem like huge numbers, right? But those numbers right there, 5.4 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit, was the difference that caused all five mass extinction events. The least of which killed 75% of all life on Earth was around 3 degrees Celsius higher than the baseline. And the worst of those events, which killed 96% of all animal life on Earth, eventually reached that 10 degrees Celsius above the baseline. So up until 2016, uh, the target that the United Nations wanted to keep the temperature at was 1.5 degrees Celsius by the year 2100. Well, we're currently around 1.2 degrees of warming already, with scientists saying that we'll probably hit 1.5 by 2024. So there's that good old faster than expected again already. All right, so you said they wanted to keep it at a 1.5 degree increase. We've already increased 1.2 degrees. I know we're seeing more natural disasters and stuff like that than before, but it doesn't seem like life has changed that drastically at this point. Yeah, and compared to where we're going to get, it hasn't. But that being said, we have seen already a lot of changes in the environment caused by climate change. Now, part of it, like we already mentioned, is that it's a bit of a slow-moving process when we talk about a person's lifetime. You know, in just the last 30 years, okay, we've emitted as much as in all the years prior— and also in the last 30 years, we've seen a huge increase in the number of hurricanes and in the number of wildfires. Just look at you know California right now or Australia this last year. It's just insane. But we're becoming desensitized to it. And we also have this problem where we look at things that happen in foreign countries with this sort of distant, like, that's happening to them because they live in a poor country, right? If it was a wealthy country, they could solve that problem sort of thing. And so while there are a huge increase in natural disasters, we just don't see them all. For example, Bangladesh, that's a country that's half the size and population of the U.S. It's like 160 million people. Sometimes up to 35% of the total landmass of that country is flooded. 
have you heard about that? Do I hear about that really ever? No, I hear about it because I look for it. But it's just an example of the fact that things are happening. We just don't see them. It's also believed that, for example, the Syria civil war was sparked by a drought, which caused food shortages, which was at least in part likely caused by climate change. So it is happening. But again, because of that scientific reticence that I mentioned, we don't look at it like a purely climate change crisis. Yeah, those are great points. Both the scientific reticence that you've mentioned and also how desensitized we get to everything that's going on and how distant we sometimes are from the things that are actually happening in other places around the world. And like I've said, I obviously don't know a whole lot, but I also am aware enough to know that all the greenhouse gases that we've emitted into the atmosphere over the last 30 years might not have a directly immediate effect. There's probably consequences that are going to come down the road from that, right? Exactly. Yeah, the the consequences aren't immediate. It's not like if we emitted all those greenhouse gases today in one day that all of a sudden, you know, the consequences would come raining down on us. It takes time for those things to to trigger feedback loops, sort of, you know, chain events that will happen in nature that normally happen over the course of tens or hundreds of thousands of years. Well, we're causing them to happen in decades. And so we're, we're beginning to enter those decades where those consequences are about to come forward. And as we continue to emit more and more greenhouse gases, we're just sealing in that fate and also making our future that much worse. Great point. So yeah, the United Nations has said, in order to avoid dire consequences, we've got to keep the temperature to less than 1.5 degrees all the way until the year 2100. Well, we're going to hit that possibly within the next four or five years. In 2016, in Paris, there was another conference on climate change in which they came together and came to the conclusion that 1.5 degrees was no longer plausible. So now they've said, okay, we simply cannot let the Earth's temperature rise to more than 2 degrees Celsius by 2100. And that remains the current goal today, though we are nowhere near on track to meeting that either. In fact, some models predict that we'll hit 2 degrees as soon as 2030. And while that's not a shoe-in, again, look, the science isn't perfect and we don't know exactly when these things will happen, much of it depends on our collective actions globally in eliminating the use of our fossil fuels. But at our current trajectories, those are potential and realistic outcomes. So you might think like, yeah, okay, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees, like what's the big deal? It doesn't seem like much. But in reality, it will make a whole world of difference. Uh, for example, when just considering air pollution, that half degree difference is estimated to cause the deaths of an extra 150 million people by the end of the century. That's 25 holocausts worth of people dying just from bad air quality and just by us slipping that extra half a degree. And that doesn't take into consideration the increase in deaths due to other things like excessive heat waves, which would happen 2.6 times as much at 2 degrees instead of 1.5 or the fact that double the number of animals and plants would die all at just that half degree difference. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, 
Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And those are the kind of numbers we need to be announcing to the world. (laughs) (laughs) And those are the numbers that are being announced to the world, but people don't listen. Because again, we have till 2100. It's totally fine. It's almost like two degrees is not only the best case scenario, but it's the one that scientists don't dare speak about going beyond that. It's almost like they feel like it's irresponsible to cause that amount of panic. But when you look at the numbers and when you listen to the scientists who are willing to step outside of that reticence and say this is what's happening, you see that going past two degrees is the most likely event and it's likely to happen in the next 30 to 40 years. So if that half a degree difference is such a big deal, then you can imagine, you know, maybe what 2 to 2.5 might look like or 2.5 to 3. But in reality, global warming is not a linear function. The consequences at 2.5 versus 2 are not the same as going from 1.5 to 2, right? The higher you get, the more dire the consequences become because other feedback loops are being triggered, other tipping points are being hit that are irreversible, that cause more and more consequences, especially to our complex and fragile systems as humans. So that being said, let's look at what we can expect to happen in our world as we warm past that two-degree goal. There are tons of books and articles and papers written to describe what the future may look like at different scenarios, and I've linked some of them in the description. But the one I'm about to quote was a recent study done by some researchers in Australia. Their names are David Spratt and Ian Dunlop. And it represents a general consensus of possible conditions around the year 2050. Okay, here we go. This is the kind of thing that I'm always asking about. What are things actually going to be like? What are they going to look like? And you're telling me that scientists have come up with that. Yeah, so there's several ideas for what they think life could look like for us. And this is just an example, right? Because the science isn't perfect, there's no way that I can say this is exactly what it will be like. But I've read several papers from scientists that talk about these types of conditions. So the scenario is that no major policy changes are followed between 2020 and 2030. We continue to emit greenhouse gases, and they peak around the year 2030. So warming reaches 1.6 degrees by 2030, and that's more conservative than the worst-case scenarios we've already talked about, and that by 2050, warming has continued, feedback loops are triggered that cause the total warming to reach 3 degrees. So the authors note that the worst case scenarios are for between 3.5 and 4 degrees Celsius by 2050. So this is not even that extreme of a scenario. But what they say is that sea levels rose by a foot and a half with another 4 to 7 feet expected across the next 50 years. 35% of all land and 55% of the global population suffer more than 20 days per year of lethal heat conditions beyond what humans are able to survive. The jet stream destabilizes, which is something we'll do an entire episode on later, but that causes droughts in some areas and intense flooding in others. North America endures a massive increase in extreme weather conditions like heat waves, fires, droughts, and floods. Rainfall in many parts of the world falls to half of current rainfalls, and that means that many life-supporting rivers empty, creating freshwater crises. Crop yields decrease by 20 to 30%. And this in a world where there are 50% more people than we currently have. 
so many poor areas of the world where AC isn't widely available become completely unviable. Deadly heat persists for more than 100 days per year in West Africa, tropical South America, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia, causing more than a billion people to be displaced. The freshwater crisis and coastal flooding causes another 2 billion people to be driven from their homes. And even in a scenario of just 2 degrees by 2050, over a billion people would still be displaced. So the paper specifically says, and I'm quoting, it says, In high-end scenarios, the scale of destruction is beyond our capacity to model, with a high likelihood of human civilization coming to an end. So thank you. Finally, we can get rid of some of the you know scientific reticence there. They're willing to put their names on the line to say how they really believe things will be. Man, when you talk about billions of people being displaced for this reason and billions of others being displaced for these reasons and lethal temperatures, rivers drying up, like the whole picture that you just described is so bleak and so intense. It just makes me think that is an extreme amount of death. And even for those that don't die, just an extreme amount of suffering. You know, I don't know if this is a fair comparison to make, but it makes me think of how we look back on slavery, particularly in the United States, and how it is just such an awful thing, like so deplorable. How could anyone enslave another human? And through their lens, back in the day, it was just like, hey, this is how things are done. This is how everyone operates their plantations. So to them, it just seemed like normal, even though a lot of people knew it was bad. I wonder if future generations will look back at us and be like, how could you have whittled away the resources and driven gas vehicles and polluted without caring, right? And that might be extreme because we're not directly harming others, but maybe indirectly we've been harming others. And to think of all the pain that it's going to cause future generations, and and it sounds like even ourselves and our children, like we're going to see a lot of these awful things happening. That's just very eye-opening. Yeah, when you consider that kids being born right now Generation Z, in the time frames that we're talking about, they'll be our age. And as they start to grow up right now, learning what they're learning, as the climate shifts and these things start to happen, I think they will immediately turn to us and say, what were you doing, right? Why were these changes not made 50 years ago? How could you not have seen this coming? And frankly, I don't know that we're going to have a great answer for them. We did see it coming, right? This has been talked about for a long time. It's just that we like driving our cars and we like air-conditioned homes and having our food flown across the world. You know, there's really no excuse for it. And while, of course, it's not your fault, it's not my fault, what could we have done to change it? You know, individual choices, if we could get electric vehicles, right, and go vegan, those are good things. But in reality, individual choices are not what is causing global warming. The vast majority of emissions come from corporations and the choice from our politicians to not do their part to control or regulate the way that we emit. Yeah, and even when you say that, it's almost like we're just a couple of steps displaced, even though we're still responsible, right? We say corporations are doing all these things, but those corporations wouldn't exist if us as the consumers weren't supporting those corporations. So it sounds like there's plenty of blame to spread all over the place. And I'm sure we could talk a whole lot about that. One thing I want to call attention back to is you've mentioned multiple times feedback loops. And I'd love to know more about what exactly that means in this context. I don't know how much detail you want to go in on that, but I'd I'd love to understand it better. Yeah. One of the first episodes that we'll do on climate change after this series 
is going to be on feedback loops specifically. In essence, feedback loops are a self-reinforcing loop of events that once started continue to trigger each other infinitely and make the problem infinitely worse. So a really quick example would be, you know, in the Arctic Ocean, it's covered in ice, right? And that ice reflects the sunlight back into the atmosphere and keeps the earth cool. Well, as that starts to melt, there is less reflective ice, which causes the atmosphere to heat up. Well, when the atmosphere heats up, it melts more ice. And because more ice is now melting, it heats up the atmosphere. So that is a feedback loop that continues on itself until the ice is completely gone. It's also an exponential function. And climate change is full of those types of feedback loops, many of which, once triggered, we can't do anything to stop. Okay, got it. Thanks. So the scenario I gave is brief and doesn't cover in a lot of detail all the consequences of climate change. But even in its brevity, it brought up some pretty chilling numbers. Like you said, you know, 3 billion migrants. It's easy to say, but impossible to fathom. When the civil war in Syria that we spoke about a moment ago started, it sparked a refugee crisis. 5.6 million Syrians left the country and around 1 million ended up in Europe. I don't know if you remember on the news for a while there, it was all about these populist movements happening in Europe as parties in those countries were refusing to let refugees in. It was kind of tearing these countries apart and all of that over 1 million refugees. So 1 to 3 billion would be that same problem magnified by 1 to 3,000 times. It's just like there's no way to really even consider the actual impacts of that type of migration crisis. And with each country already suffering incalculable problems due to their own issues with climate change, how on earth are they going to agree to take on that many refugees? You know, if the U.S. can't feed itself, how's it going to handle migrants? We have plenty to give them now, and yet we are already building walls to keep people out. So the scope of the humanitarian crisis alone would just be absolutely outrageous. But like you mentioned, there's all these other things that are causing death, you know, air pollution, floods, droughts heat, and there's not really a way to put a number on it that makes sense. Now, it's important to note this isn't an event, right? Climate change, it's not like all of a sudden, you know, the year 2050 rolls around and all these things are happening. It's something that happens over time, and it gets worse and worse and worse every year. This is why we say when people are like, oh, if only 2020 could be over because we've got a pandemic and because we've got lots of fires in California, this is just awful. Like, 2021 is not going to be better we're getting warmer. So 2021, 2022, and every year hereafter is going to bring its own set of challenges that will likely be worse, at least on the average, than years prior. You know, you talk about the humanitarian crisis and all the problems that that alone will cause. And I look at how fractured and disjointed our nation is and and all the chaos happening across the world currently. And it just leaves me thinking a lot about what exactly is this going to look like? Like, what is this going to do to our society? Yeah, it's almost like without climate change, we already have so many issues and we're already headed down this scary path like we've talked about in the last seven episodes, right? And so when you throw in all these issues of climate change, it just, it kind of gets overwhelming. And at the beginning of this episode, when you said you get onto Reddit and you see so many posts about climate change, climate change is the end all of collapse, Nothing else does it. Climate change will do it. And we've dedicated only one of eight episodes about it. But I think it's fair to say that climate change is the largest portion of collapse. It's impossible to predict what people are going to do. We don't know. We don't know what governments are going to do. We don't know what politicians will do. But it's hard to imagine, even in a scenario where everyone comes together and says, we'll do what we got to do to make it work, that that will make a difference. 
When you consider the problems we've talked about and add in what we've learned about up to this point, it's easy to see how collapse is inevitable. If over the next 15 to 30 years, we continue to kind of slide down the path of catabolic collapse, but still manage to keep our political, economic, and financial systems in place, what will happen when we get slapped in the face with these epic climate change problems, right? At that point, it'll be too late for any technological advancements to to solve them. And even if one existed, there's no way we could afford it. If we get that far, having continued to damage the world through our use of fossil fuels, we'll have done enough damage that those feedback loops we talked about will keep the environment on a downward spiral long after humans are gone. Eventually, in possibly the next century or millennia, all the ice in the world will be melted. Sea levels will be 250 feet higher than they are now. That's kind of the historical precedent for how much ice is on the earth. So we melt all that ice, the shores will have moved hundreds of miles inland, and the temperature will be so high that nothing but very small animals survive in niche parts of the globe. In the end, the earth is going to be fine, right? It goes through these cycles every so many millions of years, but people don't. That is why so many in the collapse community say that a quicker collapse one that happens before we do uncontrollable damage to the environment would be merciful. Because 10 to 20% of humanity surviving and being able to continue on an environmentally sound earth is a much better option than you know a continued dwindling of human life due to the planet becoming uninhabitable. It doesn't take the worst case scenario for this to happen. Every problem introduced into our complex system takes us that much further down the catabolic collapse pathway. Every time we have to take from our existing capital or our existing infrastructure to solve a new problem, it erodes us that much more. It hollows us out from the inside until eventually the system collapses. So whether it's a billion migrants or a couple million, right? Whether it's a massive drought that lowers food stock by 50% or whether it's just a 10% decrease in our yield while our population is still trying to climb. Those are the types of problems that will become insurmountable as we head into the next 20 to 30 years. I think sometimes in my mind, when I hear about climate change, I think, oh no, we're going to lose the polar bears, which, yeah, that's very sad. But just this conversation brings to light so many more issues and just how dire the situation really is. It kind of makes me feel like the situation is just helpless, which makes me feel kind of hopeless. And from the sounds of it, we haven't even scratched the surface of this discussion on climate change. Yeah, this is where that whole sort of mental health portion that we talked about a few times already comes into play. When you become collapse aware, you become aware that it's out of our hands. And I think it's just a part of the acceptance of it all and finding ways to cope with that knowledge. Because if you let it be hopeless, you know, that hopelessness can sort of take over. And so if only everyone felt a piece of what you're feeling right now, then maybe real change could be enacted which is why I think it's so important to have these discussions because the more people that realize it, the more we can pressure our politicians to make changes, the more we can get out and make our voices heard, you know, that sort of thing, to make it more mainstream, to make it so that scientists don't have to hide behind their reticence, right? They can loudly proclaim without being ridiculed what we're facing and therefore be able to make the changes that we need to make now. And yeah, you know, we have not scratched the surface of this Again, it's a huge topic, and we haven't talked about things, which if you're familiar with climate change, you're thinking like, he didn't even talk about like methane versus carbon dioxide or blue ocean event, which is a huge topic being discussed right now, and one of the first that we'll discuss later in the podcast. Permafrost melt or the slowdown of the jet stream, those are all pieces of the puzzle 
that result in the consequences that we spoke about today. How we get there will be discussed in a lot of these episodes in the future. Kellen, in the end, we don't have to wait until 2050 to start seeing all these effects happening. It's already here, and it will continue to intensify. This year alone has been record-breaking for hurricanes in the Atlantic, with 10 having made landfall in the U.S. at the time of this recording. Five of the six biggest fires in California's history occurred in just this year, with a month still left in the active fire season. The number of heat wave related deaths has increased dramatically, and the number of people that die from air pollution is currently sitting around 12,000 people per day. Wait, what? What do you mean that 12,000 people are dying per day from air pollution? Yeah, just that. So air pollution is the direct cause of death in 12,000 people per day through things like cardiovascular problems, things like asthma. Now we've grown accustomed to it, right? We, we say like, oh, it's cardiovascular problems that are killing people or it's asthma that are killing people. But the actual medical, if you Google this, just Google how many people die of air pollution each year. And it'll tell you 4.5 million people globally die each year because of air pollution, uh, which breaks down to about 12,000 per day. Wow. Well, the more I hear all this, the more it just makes me wish that everybody could hear this. Yeah. And I mean, that's a big reason why I wanted to do the podcast, right? So much of the information out there right now is coming from really intellectual sources with a high barrier to entry to, to learn about what it all means. And so I wanted to create a podcast where it could be explained simply but plainly to people who only have a half an hour here or there to hear about it, right? So if you're listening to this and you also want everyone to hear about it, I would encourage you to share the podcast. If you felt impacted by what I've said and you feel like I've explained it in a way that makes sense, then, you know, I would ask, share it with the people closest to you. Obviously, keeping in mind who you're sharing the information with, because this is, again, pretty heavy topics, you could say there's almost a, a moral responsibility with sharing this info and making sure that the people you're sharing it with are able to bear it. But I do think that it's very important. And the more people that know about it, the greater opportunity there will be for us to make some changes and help the most people out possible. Well, I've asked a lot of questions along the way. But I still have other questions lingering in my mind, not only from this conversation, but from the conversations we've had up to this point. So I know you and I have talked about the idea of, of having one of these podcast episodes in which I can just hit you with a bunch of really genuine questions. And I'm really looking forward to that. I imagine there's other people that also have questions that they would like to have answered on the podcast. So if that's the case, what is the best way for them to communicate those questions to you so we can answer them here? Yeah, so there are a couple ways that people can reach out to us. The first would be through Twitter, so at CollapsePod on Twitter. Also, you can email us at BreakingDownCollapse at gmail.com. So you can shoot us those questions through Gmail. Also, if you want to reach out to me on Reddit, I'm user Corey John. that's K-O-R-Y-J-O-N. I'd love to take those questions, and I think it would be cool in the future to take a couple minutes each episode and just discuss maybe a question or two that have come up either from you, Kellen, or from our listeners. And if you've got a lot of questions now, Kellen, I think maybe what would be a good idea is the next episode, let's dedicate that episode to discussing your questions and maybe use that episode to really outline the direction of this podcast moving forward. Awesome. Well, be ready for me to hit you with all my skepticism. <laughs> Bring it on.
Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We do try and make these episodes as meaningful as possible. And if you feel that the information that we're providing is valuable and you'd like to support what we're doing here, there's a link in the episode description for our Patreon account. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.